0: Everyone, thank you for uh, listening. I'm, I'm really excited to share this next episode with you. And I felt like uh, this one needed a little extra intro as well. So first of all, um, my Zoom connection was a little bit muddled during this one. So I went back and listened through and there's actually eight moments um, where the sound gets a little jumbled. It only lasts for about three to five seconds and and you can hear the words behind the jumbling um i do apologize it's it can be a little annoying uh and i hummed and hawed over whether you know i should just scrap this one and do another one but i just love this episode and uh i'll definitely do another one um this is with my dad and um we talk about You know both of our experiences in religion and uh, existential crisis and bias and um, you know how we relate to God now and what that really looks like and and so I yeah I'm just really excited to share this there's a lot of really interesting conversation and topics that we pick up on and and it's such a gift that I get to share this this relationship I have with my dad um, that i get to share it with all of you so enjoy um, we will do this again my my inspiration in this topic was really sparked after this episode so there will be more um so yeah enjoy and until next time see ya welcome
1: back everyone i am excited to be sitting across the screen uh, to share a very special episode with all of you, with a very special person in my life, my dad. So Bob McHugh, welcome to the ABC's To Live Your Dope Life.
2: Thank you, Mirren. And it is true, I am a podcast virgin.
1: Yes, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) This is great. Uh, So we have chosen a very light topic for ourselves today. We're going to dive into God. Uh, what it is, what it's not, um, our experience with God, how we relate to God. Uh, so I'm, I've been really, I've been really looking forward to this conversation. And to be honest, I was a little bit nervous even this morning, thinking about diving into this topic with you. And then I remembered, oh, but you're my dad, so it's going to be fine. Uh, (laughs) and we have
2: it'll be fine for us we need to try to make it (laughs) fine for everybody else
1: yes good points yeah Uh, so before we move through some of these uh questions and stories i want to ask you the first question that i ask everyone on the podcast and it is what is in and or on your heart today
2: well, I, I think that I'm pretty normal. Uh, COVID-related things are on my heart today, mm-hmm. as I, uh, I'm, I'm a lawyer, and um, in Calgary, and of course, here in Calgary, we're having an absolute meltdown from an economic perspective, which was caused ultimately by COVID, mm-hmm. and uh, just so many people suffering anxious um, I think it's worse here than most places, of course, way better than, you know, really poor countries and whatnot, but mm. so my, uh, that, that is what is on my heart, how we all get through this together, how we support each other, and conceptions of God, and how we think about things, how we behave together as a society, uh, I, I think that the COVID thing and the situation that we're in is going to come up during the course of our conversation, because it is top of mind, top of heart for me right mm. now.
1: Mm. Yeah, thank you. Um, and you're also in quarantine right now.
2: That's true. That is. How's true. that going? <laughs> well, the first few days I have to confess were uh, rough. I, I, I can't imagine a prison cell if uh, mm. if I struggle in a comfortable home. But yeah, the inability to go out and get exercise, in particular, which is very important to both you and me, the uh, mm-hmm. first few days were a real struggle. We're on day. Eleven now, so almost over. And after the first few days, uh, Karen, my wife, and I adjusted to that, and uh, yeah, it's all good now.
1: Mm-hmm. That's good. Are you uh, partaking in the step challenge that Karen and little Eli created for themselves?
2: No, I, uh, I wisely, uh, I wisely didn't do that. Uh, <laughs> Karen is out stepping. I see her walking back and forth uh, past my window as we're speaking, actually, because Eli kicked her rear end yesterday.
1: Oh, I didn't hear the numbers. Do you remember what the numbers were for yesterday?
2: Ten-year-old Eli was just under twenty-four thousand steps. He must have spent the whole day on the treadmill. <laughs> Karen thought she was solid at eighteen thousand, and uh, Eli ran around the house giving fist pumps when he heard that uh, he had a big margin of victory yesterday. But this is a one-week-long uh, contest, so we'll we'll see how much staying power Eli has. It's
1: going to yes. be yes. Yeah. yeah, it sounds like he may have uh, been a little too hot out of the gates there. So we'll okay. see if he can keep that up.
2: <laughs> First thing in the morning, we received a, a photo from Katie, 7.30 in the morning, and little Eli is on the on the treadmill just just giving her. And I think oh, he wow. stayed there for most of the rest of the day. Yeah.
1: That's, that's so great. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's fun. I love the uh, the creativity we're coming up with to keep ourselves yeah. motivated right now. Yeah, yeah. well... You know, when I um, was thinking about a story or or even, you know, how to even start this conversation, because obviously this is a big topic. Um, and as we connected before we started, speaking in story is really one of the best ways to actually keep people engaged and to get a, you know, a lesson or an insight um, or information across. Um, so we're going to do our best to stick to story. And you know, one of the first things that came up for me when I was thinking about my history with God and religion was my existential crisis. And I go to detail about this in my
0: book, Be the Change. Um, yes.
2: so, sweetie, I'm just gonna note your voice is fluttering again. So when you see oh, me put up my hand, that's the signal yeah. that something has gone a little wonky. So you need to repeat okay. what you just said.
1: Thank yep. you. Okay, so I, one of the stories I shared in my book, Be the Change, was my existential crisis so you and i were both raised in the mormon religion and when i was 16 is when you left the church we can talk a little bit about that if it comes up um but it wasn't until about five years later when i I experienced an existential crisis and it really surprised me um because growing up i while i was raised in the religion I was always a little bit of an outlier in the sense that I pushed against rules and I asked a lot of questions. And as soon as I was old enough to sneak away or drink or party, i that's what I was doing. <laughs> um, out, out,
2: outlier is a really nice way of, of saying disobedient.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm very careful with my words. Um, so when I was 21, I hadn't been to church in... Four or five years. and i and I've told you this story. you were a part of it in a big way is when i was um I was actually smoking weed and sitting with one of my siblings, and we were talking about the universe and sitting out on the the balcony and looking out at the sky and talking about life after death. and and I said something along the lines of, you know, when I die, I'm for sure gonna come back and haunt people. And I was just, you know, getting a little silly about the things that I'll do after I die. And this sibling of mine paused and looked at me and said, well, that's actually quite a religious thing for you to say. And (laughs) it hadn't even occurred to me that this concept of life after death was deeply ingrained in me as part of my religion. And it was in that moment where suddenly it was like popcorn, these things that I still believed but also didn't believe at the same time. So this idea of like a, you know, a a cushiony comfortable place that I'm going to land after I die. I I was subconsciously holding onto that. And I didn't realize that I actually don't believe in where that came from, yet I'm still holding onto that. And it was in that moment, it felt like the ground ripped from underneath my feet. The world started spinning. I became sick to my stomach. I just started Falling, and I ran to my room, laid on my bed, crying, convulsing, uh, and it was three days until I could actually leave my apartment. I suddenly was so terrified of death, and it was like in that one moment any little bit of religion or God or belief about what what's the, the ultimate uncertainty in life, I it was suddenly uncertain. I didn't have these answers anymore that felt really comfortable, that was all gone. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I remember it was the next day I called you and, and shared what happened. And, and you responded with, yeah, that's what happened to me. <laughs> and, yeah. and, you know, you shared a little bit more about how that happened for you. And, and I remember the end of how that happened to you because it was the moment you sat us all down as a family and said, I'm not going to church anymore. And I, I really would like you all to not go anymore as well. And and to be able to go through that myself, and then have you be able to relay that—that's that what it, it was different, but that's what happened to you. Uh, not only did I not feel alone in that moment, but it helped me. I didn't feel alone anymore, and and it helped me actually feel empowered in my brokenness mm. in that moment. Mm. And and it took me months to recover from that, uh, but I see that as a, a turning point in my life where I got to. Really pause and and rebuild, what I believe, and how I want to show up in the world. And you know I'm 33 now, so that was over a decade ago. And I, it's only in the last six months that I have I've started using the word God again. And before that, anytime I I heard the word God or or said it, it just like I'd get the shivers, like ugh. Like, <laughs> you know I didn't I didn't want to use that word, and it's taken me a long time to get to the point where that word is no longer deeply ingrained in the messiness that I first experienced it as. Um,
3: Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I, I would love to hear if you feel comfortable with sharing, whether it's your existential crisis or your story of, of religion, you know, in any way that you feel to share it today.
2: Well, the the first thing I'd say, sweetie, is that um, I, I, I remember your experience, the one you just described very well. And at the time, I thought that it was probably too much weed was at the, the, the root of, of, uh, of what you experienced. But, but beyond that, there's this fascinating way that the brain works around these deeply conditioned beliefs and, uh, and, and how we were unaware for the most part of how these deeply conditioned and unquestioned beliefs operate in the background and influence the way we think and behave. And, and your story illustrates that really well that you you shed all sorts of beliefs. A lot of the Mormon beliefs never really stuck with you. You were such a independent, free-thinking, don't-tell-me-what-to-do kid, like right from the time you were tiny, mm-hmm. that, that a lot of the things that I had trouble with leaving Mormonism were never a problem for you. But still, you had some of these deeply ingrained basic ideas, mm-hmm. have genetic roots probably as well. We're We're all prone to believe in these things to an extent, and and I, I think during the course of this conversation, we'll, we'll get back to this idea of how the brain works, particularly in a social context and why we're vulnerable to this kind of belief. And, and they, it's easy for us to identify weird dysfunctional beliefs in other people. Uh, we're pretty much blind with regard to ourselves. And again, your story illustrates that really mm-hmm. well. You blithely cruised along for five years without being aware. Mm-hmm. of a belief that was influential and important and, and when that belief was threatened, uh the rug came out from under you. So it's mm-hmm. a really good story. Um my my story is um I think it's too long to try to tell in <laughs> detail. Yeah. But but the, the bottom line is after you know, after at midlife, I'd I'd been a faithful Mormon for almost my entire life, and and this this is a tricky thing to tell in public. I mean, I've written about it publicly, but uh, we have for you and I both have friends and family members who are devout Mormons and and very religious people in other ways, and so um, I, I think it is important that we share these stories in a realistic, empathetic way, and um, I, I want to make it clear that while. While my views are, are very um, solid with regard to what, you know, what works and what doesn't work for me, what's real and what's not real, uh, I have a lot of friends who are Mormon. Uh, I, I respect them as individuals. We disagree with regard to belief. Uh, and that doesn't mean that we can't respect and love each other, family members, close friends. And so I'm, I'm respectful with regard to other people's beliefs. That doesn't mean that I have to accept them. Uh, but I, I, I accept and I love many people who have beliefs that differ from mine.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So um, having said that, when we, we grow up in a world that, um, that teaches us things from a young age, uh, we're vulnerable to those things. We accept them. Um, and then our neural networks grow around them. And uh, someone told me after I left Mormonism that I was going to have a God-sized hole in my heart. One of my friends told me that, and that that hole would never heal. And, um, and I just laughed it off. Uh, and in a sense, he was right, but it was a, a God-sized hole in my brain, not in my heart, because the the habits and neural networks and social connections um, that were formed, the neural networks form around those habits, beliefs, social connections, and, and when I stopped believing and stopped attending Mormon meetings, stopped participating in Mormon culture, um, there was this you know, very sizable part of my brain that suddenly was no longer being used. And, and, and it was accustomed to being used.
3: Mm-hmm. So
2: a little bit like what happened when I went into quarantine here a few days ago. I mean, little things like not, not being able to go outside. Well, that was surprisingly difficult to deal with. Um, because I'm used to doing that, and the, the, a lot of psychologists have written about that pro, that, that problem relative to COVID,
3: mm-hmm. that our
2: our regular patterns of behavior are interrupted, that produces anxiety in and of itself. Well, I, I was experiencing that on steroids when I left Mormonism, mm-hmm. and uh, and so it was uh, a, you know very unsettling time. You experienced the same thing when when one of your major beliefs was, was interrupted or or taken away from you. And so it takes time for the neural networks to reform and for new habits of thought, new habits of behavior, gradually to come into being and then stabilize into reliable neural networks that we can depend upon to make ourselves feel stable and secure. This is about feeling stable and secure. Mm. And uh, when we're torn out of our social group or have our, our beliefs interrupted, we feel insecure, and, and that produces anxiety. Uh, and, and it's just a matter of how severe the disruption that determines how long it takes to form new neural networks, allow them to stabilize, and then feel comfortable in our own skin again. And in my case, that took the whole process took probably three years uh, after I left Mormonism to become comfortable in, in this new world that I had chosen to inhabit.
1: I think it's, it's really interesting that you describe it as a, a hole in your brain versus a, a hole in your heart. You know, the, the way you really moved through it was very cognitive. And I, and I think that was an important, a really important part because the, the heartstrings that get pulled in this process yeah. of, of even, yeah. like someone saying that to you, there's gonna be a, a God-sized hole in your heart Yeah, yeah. that's, that sounds terrifying. Like, no wonder people stay, you know, because of this, this threat of, you know, you're, you're not going to be able to be with your family for eternity. You know, you've, you've just destroyed your whole family. So for you, was it a little bit of like, cut off feeling and just focus Um, on the fact of bias and rebuilding neural pathways?
2: Well, I, 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 had, I had to tamp down feeling to an extent because you know I didn't know how to meditate back in those days. I've learned a lot about that from you in the last little while.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, that, but uh, keeping panic at, at bay was a significant challenge during the first little while. Um, the, the reason I use the, the, the neural um, um, language to describe my experience is because a lot of it is, is neural. But, but I also believe, and I think you and I have the same view in this regard, uh, that our, we have a whole body intelligence. I'm, I'm completely science and evidence-based. I, 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 I try to discipline myself that way. And, uh, and there's lots of scientific evidence for a whole body intelligence. And so to say that there's a hole in your heart, well, that's a metaphor that works for me as well. But, but most of what goes on is driven by neural networks in the brain. And, and and we know enough about that through fMRI scans and that sort of thing that you can we can actually talk about the disruption uh, of behavioral patterns based on neural networks that are suddenly not being used mm-hmm. and how the brain then recruits resources from different places to fill in. And it happens in all sorts of different ways. So it's not surprising that if you radically change your life, you're going to be uncomfortable because there's a bunch of a very valuable... You know material in our body, the brain is so densely packed with nerve endings and whatnot. all of a sudden, something that was a big, powerful engine is just sitting idle and it 's kind of twitching and and wondering you know what the hell's happening and and eventually uh, you start to do other things and 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 those that neural network will be repurposed for something else it 'll re literally reform. Mm-hmm. and um and, and but there are all it's connected to feelings it's not intellectual it's mostly emotional mm-hmm. um and uh and so it was a very very emotional experience i i was right on the verge of committing suicide the uh, the day that i accepted the reality that my entire life was based on a false foundation i literally flirted with suicide mm-hmm. and I, I was 44 years old sitting in a you know an office on the twenty something floor of a office tower in calgary when when that that reality came crashing in, and it was a an experience similar to yours with the realization that there was no life after death, except i I didn't go and lay down on my bed, I just sat in my office and and literally had a panic attack and uh mm-hmm. and thought that maybe the best way out was to just throw myself through that office window, and that would be the end of that mm-hmm. um so that, 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 that raw panic gradually subsided and it would come back occasionally in smaller waves. Uh, and the last of those waves didn't, uh, I probably had the experience of the last of those waves three or four years after the original experience, which was, um, you know, that the anniversary is in June. Uh, the year was 2002. So I'm almost 20 years into this process now.
1: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. and. It- it's been interesting watching you transition over the last twenty years. Of you know, when you first left, there definitely was a little bit. Uh, there was a lot of not anger, but there was a lot of energy on just being anger. able to. And anger, okay, yeah, that's Those, fair.
2: I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll fess up to that. A huge amount of energy, most of it very positive. Yeah, and, and some anger, and it's it's the old Kubler Ross stages of grief. Right. You know, denial. It's it's the, the, that 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 the stages of grief literature describes perfectly uh, what a person goes through when they lose a community or lose their family due to one of these faith issues and have to begin to rebuild somewhere else.
3: Right, mm-hmm.
2: he describes it. So anger is an important part of the the engine that allows people to drive through these very, very difficult experiences.
1: Yeah. You know, and you you wrote. Feverishly for a few years about your experience and and the massive amount of reading and research you were doing to yeah. to basically take all those neural pathways that have been used for forty four yeah. years and put them to use somewhere else
2: well and it was learning and, and uh, my writing was iterative I, I would write about the same things over and over again, but with you know in a different context you know adding a new idea and then you know, redoing something that I had previously written, mm. and when I look back on that, it was very like my brain was trying to stabilize itself. This is not something I planned to do.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: this was something that just happened and uh and it took several years to you know find the new ideas. How do I want to behave like what's right and what's wrong uh is it okay to you know, to go out and break every single Mormon rule? Or are there some of those rules that were actually quite useful? And and so I tried to do as much social scientific research as I could to determine what living the good life was going to mean for me. Mm-hmm. And one of the most beautiful experiences of my whole life was, was going through that exercise. And I remember on Sunday mornings in particular, when Sunday within the Mormon community is a, church, a day devoted to going to church and that sort of thing. And for, I I would cry almost every Sunday morning. I would not not cry, but shed a few tears, become very emotional as I drove somewhere on a Sunday with you kids to, you know, go play outside or uh, to go do something that I just wanted to do. Uh, The the, the sense of liberty and freedom uh, was incredibly moving and uh, and emotional. And um, yeah, and gradually that emotional energy dissipated at the same time as the as the the new brain networks stabilized, and but the, some of the most beautiful beautiful experiences of, of my life were triggered as a result of breaking this new ground and determining what you know, what worked for me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is an experience that most people go through in university, where you're figuring out who you are and, and what you're going to be and what what you value. And in my case, it, that didn't happen until I was in my mid 40s.
1: Mm-hmm yeah and I, i'm i'm curious to hear now of all the different iterations of of belief and spirituality that you you have explored and tried on and and experienced where where have you landed like how do you relate to god now or do you even do you even think in those terms or when it comes to spirituality or universal consciousness you know where are you now with all that yeah.
2: Well, there's a little little story that we've talked about before that, um, that I think is worth sharing in that regard. This is our friend, Stuart Kaufman, who you'll remember, the, he's a prominent uh, scientist, biologist, and, and a guy who's come up with some really beautiful ways of explaining how reality works. I, I wouldn't be surprised if he eventually receives a Nobel Prize, he's that, that kind of scientist. And uh, one of the terms that he coined in biology, which uh, applies by analogy to, uh, to our human experience, is, um, is the adjacent possible. And, and the concept of the adjacent possible in evolutionary biology, basically is that you, you can't evolve from being a mouse into being a bird in one step. Um, evolution works in small steps, and, but you could evolve from a fish to a bird, let's say. But you can not evolve from being a fish into being a land-based animal. Uh, And once you're a land-based animal, then a new realm of possible next evolutionary steps opens up. And every time you take one uh, evolutionary step, a whole new world of other possible steps open up and become possible. This is the idea of the adjacent possible. Only what is immediately adjacent is possible in evolutionary terms. Mm. So by that process, a fish can become a bird through these many different steps that open up different worlds of possibility at each step. And uh, in my case, um, I I, I think I already was a fairly liberal Mormon in some ways. I went from there to being a liberal Christian, and I spent quite a few years. In fact, I just read something in preparation for this call that I wrote when I I called myself a liberal or metaphorical Christian and uh, and once I but once I moved into that space, then I could see other possibilities, and I won't describe the whole process, but now most people would call me an atheist. Um, I, I The more specific the notion of God, the less I'm likely to find any use in it. Um, however, uh, people like Einstein referred to God as this incredible, mysterious force that underlies all reality, where, at every level of reality that's been studied from the quantum physics level up to the astrophysics level and everything in between, new stuff just pops into being uh, in ways that we can't explain yet. Uh, This is the the phenomenon of emergence.
1: Did you know, actually, I have a a letter that it's a printed version of a letter that Einstein wrote to his daughter. And he said, so he, he actually wrote thousands of letters to his daughter. Yeah. And she, she held on to them and didn't donate them until after his death. Yeah. And and this letter, he says that the universal force that's beneath everything is love. And it's, it's this beautiful letter about how love is the foundation of everything.
2: Yeah. Well, the, mm-hmm. Einstein was, he was a, a gifted artist or almost a poet. The way he used language was quite something. So it sounds like, I haven't read that letter, but that's what he would say about God as well. Um mm-hmm. And so uh, I'm okay with you know calling that sort of like there is an incredible mystery underlying the creative nature of our reality, but we Mm -hmm. we don't know what that is. Uh, Einstein would not try to explain anything about actually how it worked because he was a great scientist and he didn't know, so he wasn't going to speculate about something that he didn't know. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think that he indicated that. As far as he could tell, this, this version of God didn't have any awareness of us, didn't care about us. Um, so very, very unlike uh, the conception that most people have of God. But, but for him, the, the, the awe of confronting this mystery that's at the core of our physical reality, um, that, that provoked a feeling in him that he recognized was very similar to the way many people feel with regard to their religious experiences,
3: mm-hmm. and and
2: so I'm I'm okay with calling that God. I, I I don't use God language for a while. I did. It took me a while to gradually let go of that as my neural networks changed. Uh, now I'm I'm more comfortable with sort of a humanist philosophy or a you know uh, I, I'm, I'm I'm very prone to awe. I'm an emotional person, uh, but I, I don't I don't infer from those experiences that there is some sort of a God I was taught to make that connection uh, as a child and um, that's part of what I had what I left behind when I I left Mormonism Mm
1: -hmm. yeah you know I know I um a few weeks ago I sent you uh a book uh the Kybalion that I uh, another friend had just sent it to me and and it was either the next morning or a few hours after I sent it to you, you called me up and were like, Uh, what's going on?
0: why, why did you send me this? And uh, um, yeah.
1: and I, I did ask you, like, Oh, are you worried about me? You know, because it was it's definitely a very uh well it's about hermetic hermeticism. Um I have a quote that I want to read in a moment. Um, but something that I've realized about myself is that I very similar to you, I love exploring and trying on new perspectives and you know i don't i don't believe necessarily in astrology but i find it fascinating and i you know i i listen and i when things pop up i'm curious about it but at the same time i'm i'm not a hard and fast like astrology is is true i just find it interesting and same with aliens i don't believe necessarily in aliens but i find it fascinating and i can go down some really sometimes a little too far down rabbit holes into areas of just so far from reality that it takes me a while to bring myself back but i i i I just find that stuff so fascinating and and that's what i i felt immediately with the kybalion was that this is just it's another interesting rabbit hole yeah um and and the quote that i want to read actually is from the very beginning of the book because as you go deeper into the book and it starts going into a lot of theory and, and trying to ex- describe something that can't be described. And what's fascinating is at the very beginning of the book, it says that this is unknowable. And then it goes in to try to describe it a little bit or, or get more clear on, well, what is knowable? And um, yeah. so I'm, I just want to read this one quote because I find it to be pretty potent. Okay. The Hermetic, Hermetitists believe and teach that the all in itself is and must ever be unknowable. So the all, side note, is really what universal consciousness or, or God, any of that stuff, they refer to it as the all. Okay, I'll continue. They regard all the theories, guesses, and speculations of the theologians and metaphysicians regarding the inner nature of the all as but the childish efforts of mortal minds to grasp the secrets of the infinite. Such efforts have always failed and will always fail from the very nature of the task. One pursuing such inquiries travels around and around in the labyrinth of thought until he is lost to all the same reasoning, action, or conduct and is utterly unfitted for the work of life. He is like the squirrel Which frantically runs around and around the circling treadmill wheel of his cage, traveling ever and yet reaching nowhere. At the end, a prisoner still, and standing just where he started. Hmm. Isn't it? Yeah. So that's that's the way that I've been uh, trying to really keep in mind as I continue exploring spirituality or, you know, what is the universe and what is God exploring this terrain with the at the same time knowing I actually can't know it or there's there's parts of it that I can't know because it's so much bigger than me and I'm a part of it and it's in me but I can't I can't know something that is bigger than my own mind
2: yeah 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 well that 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 assumes that there is something out there that is beyond just the natural processes of our world. Uh-huh. And I've I've come to believe that all there is out there are the natural processes of our world that they can explain all of the beautiful experiences that we have and uh, and the, the the this incredible creativity that we have within within the natural world. Um, and it's the way I like to approach this now is to focus on learning what I can actually learn there's so much about the way the world works that that is understandable Uh, if we focus on it we can learn about social systems and how the brain works and how mental health works and all this stuff that i know you spend a lot of time thinking about and trying to understand Mm -hmm. and then there's this stuff that is in the category of the unknowable Uh, from my perspective that's now art that's poetry, that's, uh, that's performance art of different kinds. It's the, the things that produce these really powerful, beautiful feelings. Um, I, I I love those experiences. I seek them. Um, and, um, and I don't need to understand them. I just accept them. And then if something comes along that may help me to understand part of what I didn't think was understandable, I'm just thrilled. Uh, and, and occasionally that does happen. But for, for the most part, I, I, once I get to the point where realistically I can't know something, then I I, I move it into that other category, and just enjoy it.
1: Mm. I think that's really smart. Yeah, because I, I I'm still trying to play with this and find the balance for me. Because it, you know, I I even come back to the chakra system in in yoga philosophy, and there's seven main chakras, and the bottom three are more connected to our basic needs and our primal nature and like our animal nature. And it it really is about pleasure and connection to earth and connection to other people and our ability to move and our ability to feel. And and these are such important qualities of what it is to be human. And then as we move up higher, we move into the heart and then the throat and the third eye and the crown. And these start getting into the more more esoteric realms of even mental activity, spirituality and the unknown. And, and the way that I have really been playing with this is the the understanding that if I am all, you know, heart or throat and up, then I'm, I'm just like floating up in the ether and yeah, really enjoyable, but I can't have a conversation with anyone. And I've, I've been in this state where I'm so in the unknowable that I, I don't feel like I'm of this earth. And I have a hard time relating to anybody.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And then other times on the other end is if I'm so entrenched in, in feeling or in movement or getting fixated on myself or my body, that also is doing myself a disservice. I'm, I, yeah. I feel like I have tunnel vision and I become rigid and I become heavy. And yeah. and so to me, it's about striking the balance of how, how do I honor and really enjoy this, this material yeah. world and be here? and also still open my mind, expand myself, experience the unknown, have these moments of awe. And I really like what we you describe that as, as soon as you feel or know you're in the realm of maybe the unknowable. Yeah.
3: To, just,
1: to just enjoy it
3: yeah. and, not, yeah.
1: and not try to know it because we can't. And I yeah. think that's where I start spinning off is trying to know the unknowable. And, and even in the Kybalian, some of the phrases of for the, the man who can grasp this, like the the gates of heaven open or, you know, there's so many different sayings that are like, you have the key to everything if you are the one who gets this. And when I read that, I'm like, I want to get it. I want to be the one who shows the world, you know, how to relate to God and, you know, these secrets that no one knows. I want to be the one who finds them. And I think that's a very common human trait.
2: Well, it works. That's that's a hook that people who've tried to build religious and other communities have been using from time immemorial,
3: right? Because it
2: works. We are, we, we, we are vulnerable to certain kinds of pitches and that's, that's one of them right there.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Some yeah. of us more vulnerable than others. Yeah. And just the, the, the way you react to the chakra system, that that's another, it's a good example of a system that, you know, it doesn't have any basis in, in what, what we now understand about the, the neurology of, of the body. Like the physical location, like what we well, know. Well, it does. That, well, a little bit, but we've got a reptilian brain, right? Up yeah. here. So yes. we, we, the, the bottom of the spine is important, but a big part of our reptilian nature is in the back of our heads, right by the brain stem. So, I mean, the, so the, strictly speaking, the way they break that down
1: mm-hmm. does
2: not correlate well with modern science. There are some correlations.
1: Well, that's true, think. actually. I actually have said to many people, that you don't, the chakra system to me, it doesn't actually matter, these areas. Like you could say, you right, yeah. this, this finger on this hand, this is my root chakra, and it represents X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And, and just to have that connection to your body and yeah. focus on these high quality concepts, yeah. I truly believe it would, uh, would give you the same effect.
2: Well, the, the, the story of how these various parts of us work psychologically, um, that, that's, that does work okay. at least largely, uh, mm-hmm. because a lot of people who have observed a lot of human beings wisely put together a system that, you know, that made sense. It worked from a pragmatic perspective in many ways. And because it worked, they made assumptions with regard to how the body actually physically is set up. Turns out those assumptions are not correct, but, um, but, but a lot of the behavioral insights are correct. So this is one of those things where i i don't um, I, i'm I'm happy to use the behavioral insights of something like that system uh, without needing to verify that the or needing to accept that it that it's an actual accurate physical description of
3: mm-hmm. the way
2: our bodies work. It's a little bit like the old uh what was that the telemic um understanding of of the universe uh, where uh ptolemy p-t-o-m-l-e whatever uh who figured out uh, by looking at the stars you could you could guide ships over long periods of time he made up a a map of the sky Mm. and it was an accurate system for navigation that worked for many hundreds of years that's how early people got around the world from one place to another um and uh part of his system involved uh, the earth being at the center of the universe. Uh, absolutely incorrect but notwithstanding that that fundamental error in in how he believed the universe was set up he devised a system based on the movement of the stars which provided accurate navigational guidance mm. so you don't have to be right about things sometimes in order to come up with something that will actually function that will be pragmatically useful so and, and i'm okay with that but then a lot of people, of course, the Catholic Church, we know what they did to Galileo, mm-hmm. and Galileo um, demonstrated that the sun is at the center of our solar system, not the Earth, let alone the universe, right? So yeah. many people actually believed that the Earth had to be at the center of everything and uh, and, and, and that it, it was a real big problem when scientific evidence disclosed that, that wasn't the case. The Catholic Church, I, I think. If I remember correctly, it was 1992 when the Catholic Church issued a formal apology to Galileo for having um, arrested him and you know did all these terrible wow. things. Him and others who, you know, they were they were right. These people that were persecuted and in some cases killed by the Catholic Church were. Yeah. And and I'm not I'm not saying anything necessarily. I'm not singling out the Catholic Church. That's just one example of countless examples where. Yeah, where the, 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 the nature of physical reality is actually very, very important, but occasionally people who got that wrong in a fundamental way, nonetheless, uh, use their ideas to come up with something useful. So right. ju- just because you're wrong about the way the world works or the way the body works doesn't mean that everything you come up with is worthless and should be thrown out. We still need to assess things on the basis of whether they work or not, whether they're yeah.
1: helpful. Well, and that just makes me think of, you know, the bias we have around our own belief systems in general and how we yeah. we actively and subconsciously seek out evidence that proves us right. Of course. And yeah. when though when evidence comes up that threats what yeah. we believe, we often either just blow it off as yeah. like, oh, that was just a one time thing or or we might get angry and persecute the person that yeah. brought something to our attention. Um, yeah. And I, I think, you know, even what I wrote in my book and what you've described beautifully and the way you've navigated through this is just the ability to stay open
3: Yeah.
1: and, and even the, the assumption that, that we're wrong. Yeah. You know, we've, there's, there's a lot that we have, right. But, uh, but we're also wrong about a lot of different things. And if we get, closed off or fixated or attached to any one belief as if we need that to survive then we're closing ourselves off from a massive amount of evolution that can happen over a lifetime yeah
2: yeah Yeah, we you and i have talked a lot about the cognitive biases yeah uh, I, i still say that studying the cognitive biases was the most important part of what enabled me to distance myself from mormonism and understand my experience like how you get to midlife um, and then suddenly discover that uh, all of your most important beliefs, virtually all of them uh, have an extremely high probability of being incorrect. And it's, it's the way the cognitive biases work that, uh, that explain that. Mm-hmm. I, I think that, that it'd be worth talking about that a little bit, Marin. I think um, from a, like getting back to the basic question of what is God yeah. um, that's a, it's a really personal thing. People it's It's one of the most tenacious beliefs um, that people have, one of the strongest one of the most emotionally held beliefs if that belief is threatened it's a it, it causes wars it causes people to kill each other yeah. so extremely personal and then on the so we have to accept that and, and and without you know without accepting everyone else's beliefs, we have to accept how important they are and that it's really really difficult if you if you go straight at somebody's belief in a particular god yeah and and then there's the idea that certain beliefs in god are socially really important Um, they can cause really good things and really bad things so uh, so putting aside how personally important these beliefs are it's also very important that we study how these things work and come Mm -hmm. to understand as much as we can about them because for example uh you've got 9-11 and other you know terrible things that have been done in the name of religion and and i know the question of how religion related to 9-11 is not straightforward but nobody will deny that uh that terrible things are done in the name of religion that yeah. happens all the time religion also is responsible for many positive things
3: mm-hmm.
2: and uh and for example the uh Um, the the idea that we should take care of the earth because the bible says that we are the stewards of the earth and and so we should restrict you know carbon output and all of that sort of thing that religion motivates really really good pro-social behavior often as well so we need to understand we should understand where these things come from and, and how that influences society generally and even if we can't question our own beliefs, and many people simply can, in fact, I'm, I'm not sure what the percentage is, but it's got to be a very, very high percentage of the people who hold strong religious beliefs are incapable of questioning those beliefs. It's just too, it's too upsetting, too yep. difficult. But, but even for those people to try to understand how everybody else believes and behaves and the connection between positive and negative social outcomes that religion, that religious belief of different types have, I think that's a, that's a worthwhile endeavor.
3: Mm. And
2: so I, I think it would be interesting to talk for a few minutes about why religious belief is so sticky. This is something that you and I have talked about. Why once you feel like you know something um, from a religious perspective, you know about God, you know that your group is the right group or the, the only true group, that sort of thing. Why th- those beliefs to outsiders seem absolutely preposterous? How is it that smart, nice, good people consistently around the world and throughout history hold those beliefs?
3: Mm-hmm. so yeah. I've talked
2: about this before, so i I'd, I'd love to but it's been a long time, so I'd love yes. to hear your take on that on that question.
1: Yeah, well, the first thing that comes up for me is the the happy chemicals we experience when we feel like we belong yeah so you know this this social construct around religion where as you said it's it's a very personal relationship with god but it also is about our family and our community and that's
2: that's where it all comes from
1: yes yeah and that's you know the chemicals we receive the oxytocin the dopamine the serotonin to name a few when not only do we feel like we are in the the right group like man does that feel good like i just won Right. There's yeah, so many yeah. positive chemicals that come in. It's it serves our survival to feel like we are the ones who are actually going to survive more than anyone else so that we have more answers than other people. It, it's yeah. um, we're driven to feel good when we have that that status position. And then, you know, the, the stickiness around it as well is, you know, when I really stop and think about how much uncertainty there actually is in life there's a lot that's uncertain and so to have someone give me on a platter here are some answers to some really big questions that now you can just set aside
3: yeah
1: and and kind of not ignore but it's now you don't need to be sitting in the discomfort of uncertainty around these things because we got you
2: right
3: yeah
1: and you know and that's for me my existential crisis was the finally having that leave my system yeah that you know that infinite comfort
2: yeah No, oh, no that that's that's true yeah that's exactly right mm. and something else you and i have talked about uh in the past is uh, andy newberg the uh one of the neuroscientists who has studied the belief how, how the belief in god becomes so sticky by doing fmri scans on uh, monks and catholic nuns and other people while meditating that sort of thing and i i, I remember the day that i came across his ideas that was a, a big day for me because it made so much sense out of out of my experience there's another guy named davidson who was a has been an influential scholar in that field as well and their findings are very similar and if if i remember the way it works it's the The idea that the sympathetic system and parasympathetic system, Mm -hmm. that's the the system that quiets us and the adrenaline system on the other side, the flight or fight system, that they operate as a teeter-totter. Almost never do you have both of them high functioning at the same time. One goes down, the other goes up, and then vice versa back and forth. But there are a few circumstances in which both of them are firing at a high level at the same time. And those experiences are among the most memorable in, in our, our human experience. One of those is uh, during um, sexual climax. Mm. Both systems are firing at, at that time. And that, that's from a, a limbic system perspective, a neural perspective. That's, that's what makes sexual climax so remarkable. Well, you mm. can get a, a minor version of the same thing when you're meditating. Peak meditation experience has both of those systems functioning at the same sort of level. And, and uh, great meditators use the language of God and and orgasm to describe their experience. And
3: mm-hmm.
2: now that we understand the neural correlates of their experience, that's not surprising. The same thing can happen in a religious context. And this is where Newberg's work uh, comes in, in particular. So he would say, for example, that in the case of a, the death of a loved one, your suffering your 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 adrenaline system is firing because you are suffering you're grieving Um, and then someone a religious leader or someone comes into your uh, your life at that moment and explains in a credible way credible to you that in fact your loved one has just gone to heaven you'll be together again etc and before the adrenaline system can fall there's this surge of relief. And love and all of the the positive uh, aspects of the other system rev up and mm-hmm. you, you end up in that situation where they're both firing at the same time and that produces an experience that has a lot in common with with uh, the sexual climax well it's mm-hmm. a remarkable experience and and the, the, the ancients as well as modern scholars say that when a person has had that experience they know something at an emotional level that becomes almost impossible to unroot. You know it beyond evidence. It doesn't matter. And, and religions are very adept through, you know, making shaming people and then forgiving them. For example, there's all sorts of mechanisms embedded in many organized religions that produce this experience And then the religion or the the, the priest or the religious leader is right there to to tell the young person, and I'm thinking of me, uh, the reason you felt that is because God just touched you. Right. God has now told you that Mormonism is the only way to get to heaven. Mormonism is the only way to live a happy, good life, et cetera, et cetera. So having had this incredible experience while you're still raw, while you're still just in a state of amazement because you've had something incredible happen, they then pin that experience to certain ideas. Mm
3: -hmm. And that
2: process is repeated over and over again until there's a, there's a stable neural connection. Between your incredible experience that made you feel things that were so special and so deep, to a belief that something is true, that belief then becomes extremely difficult to unwind. And, and a lot of people have their religious belief based in that concept. Mm. For other people, it's just a question of being secure within your family or your social group. If you misbehave and get kicked out of the group, even though we're all safe today, uh, when our biology evolved, if you got kicked out of your small group, you were gonna die. So we have a a terrible irrational fear of of getting sideways with uh, with the people within our groups. Right. But for for many people, it's that it's that I just I know this. Right. It does I not felt matter.
3: It. Yeah. I felt it. Right. Yeah.
2: So it's it's what, what I, I I think. I used to use the term emotional epistemology, epistemology being how we, how we learn things, how we know things. How we know. And when, yeah. you, when you know something at an emotional level like that, it is beyond logic and persuasion. This is something that lives in the gut. And, and what goes on in the brain can't touch it, uh, mm-hmm. except in very rare circumstances.
1: Which is why you've challenged me when I've said things like, oh, it just feels true it's yeah, it's been it, nice it, to have that reminder of like, okay, remember our and upbringing
2: is, <laughs> Don't. And, and now we're back to the cognitive biases we we
1: yeah.
2: like that that beautiful book that Daniel Kahneman wrote uh, thinking fast and slow yeah is, is all about this you know that there are, there's a map of our brain basically and and if 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 issue x comes up, then you should not trust your feelings like that there are areas in which when we're you know, we're with a celebrity or some other authority figure and they tell us X. Well, we're prone to believe X, right? If Michael Jordan showed up in my in my room right now, I'm I'm watching The Last Dance. Uh, mm-hmm. at, at so good. Jordan, Jordan was one of my heroes. Uh, if he showed up and said, Bob, you, you need to seriously consider revisiting Mormonism and going back to church, I'd get the trembles. <laughs> I, I, I'd know in my brain that that that's a terrible idea. But if Michael Jordan came in here and told me I needed to go back to church, my he gut He said would
1: start. he had a vision and you appeared to him and, and oh. said, like, come beg me to come back to the
0: church.
2: I'd, I'd, uh, it would take me a day or two to wrestle that one, uh, uh under control, right? Yeah. Because we're, every one of us are vulnerable to be like, so the study of the cognitive biases is, is the way to deal with that concept. Uh, that there are times when we should trust our first feeling. There are other times when that first feeling is often wrong and we need to slow down. So that's why Kahneman, who won a Nobel Prize for his work, in certain cases, you think fast and you go with it. In other cases, you think slow. And and he's got this beautiful set of principles with regard to when we should think slow and when we should just go with our gut because questioning your gut in other cases probably is going to lead you astray or cause you to miss an opportunity.
1: Well, and I think even to add to that, the, the thinking fast is what happens automatically nonstop. Yes. Right. And so it's the, the thinking slow is what, what do we do after? And so for me, that's my continual practice is I always have an instinctive impulse. Yeah. And as soon as I notice it, that's when I pause yeah. and I breathe and I sit with it because yeah. sometimes it could be I'm, I'm feeling elated and yeah. I, I get an impulse to, to say yes to something or create something. And I know that if I'm creating or, or building momentum on this high, it's actually not sustainable. And the same thing on the other end, if I'm feeling really low, and I start getting the impulse of like, I need to leave my husband, and I need to pack everything up and go move into the mountains and live in a cave, um, I probably need to sit with that. That's, instead a, good of, time
2: think, that's a good time to think slow. To yeah. think
1: slow. But I, I have to do this continuously throughout the day. Is pause and check in is this really how I want to show up is this how I want to continue thinking and and what I come back to for this is that your thoughts align with your affect or the story or narration in your mind is following the state within your body
2: that's true yeah
3: and
1: so I I don't just believe what I think as soon as I notice what I'm thinking I then check in well how am I holding my body how am I moving how am I breathing how are my basic needs and yeah. I, I really don't want to make any important decision until yeah. I've really paused to sit with it and play yeah. with it and get more clear on like, okay, what, what could possibly happen? And, uh, yeah. and I can see why always doing that, like you would just spin yeah. and overanalyze and you'd get nothing yeah. done. So it's, it's yeah. the elephant in the rider metaphor that we both love go. from no, Jonathan Haidt's yeah. work. I was,
2: just, I was just going to mention that. And, and I agree with you. It's the almost everything we do is automatic. Yeah. And uh, so you, you you wouldn't want to second guess running when you thought you heard a tiger in the jungle.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So that, that that's Kahneman's point with regard to the thinking fast part. There are lots of things where, in fact, most of life works best if we just let the thinking fast part work. It's 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 when to pause. That's that's the trick. Mm-hmm. And, and so what you're doing you you now have some instincts that are throwing up flags that say okay slow down mm-hmm. and and the, the discipline that learning learning the circumstances in which we should do that and then learning how to do it that's that's our life work we, we can yeah. become much more functional much happier uh if if we gradually learn how to do that and uh, i'm 62 and I am still learning how to do that. I expect to be learning how to do that on my way into the ground at the end of life. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's a, life, a lifelong process, not something that you learn and master. Right,
1: yeah, yeah. definitely. It's the journey.
2: It's the journey, that's
1: mm-hmm. right, yeah. Well, I don't want to take too much more of your time. Um, we've been going for about an hour here. So, you know, to wrap up, this conversation is is there anything left unsaid or anything coming up for you that feels like tying up any loose ends
2: hmm. that's a that's a really a really nice question sweetie thank you mm-hmm. um, I, I guess what I would what I would want to say is that um, I am so grateful for the change that came into my life 20 years ago as, as you know you've seen the whole movie it's yes. not all been easy or pretty. Um, but life is uh so much better and sweeter from my perspective, uh after having um freed myself. There were a lot of things that I didn't need to do that were wasteful, that were actually harmful. Um actually I'll I'll finish with a story. This is the one of my favorite stories, and uh you'll remember this. Um you were fifteen or sixteen when I left. And uh, you and I had spent a lot of time together playing basketball. I was your first basketball coach. Uh, eventually, you needed uh, other, better, more diverse coaches, and and when we didn't do quite so much of that, but still, we spent a huge amount of time together over many years. And I felt very, very close to you. And as you moved into your teenage years, uh, the a gap uh, came into being, which makes sense. That happens in most families. Um, and, um, and as you indicated, you were out breaking the rules, breaking the Mormon rules, mm-hmm. many of which were pure stupidity. But at that time, I didn't see it that way. Uh, because you were breaking the rules, you couldn't come talk to me about that. Mm-hmm. And uh, it took a day or two for you to digest what I told you about me leaving Mormonism and, and offering everybody else the opportunity to consider the same. And then you came to me and you said, okay, dad, now that I know that you won't get mad at me, there are some things that I want to talk about. And then you started talking about issues with boys. You were starting to experiment with that and about drinking and about, you know, a bit of partying. And and, uh, it felt like our intimacy uh, took a a massive step upward. Mm -hmm. And I, I shed tears over that back in the day. Mm. And uh, and and I realized at that moment that some of these well-intended religious rules put us in a position where we couldn't be real with each other. You were only allowed to communicate and be real about things that that um, were endorsed and acceptable within that culture. And, and this is not a Mormon thing, obviously. This is a this applies everywhere.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And so you couldn't be real with me. And our intimacy was false. Mm-hmm. And when we got into a position where you could confide in me without being judged, without fear of being punished, all of a sudden we, we began to have a different kind of relationship, which has continued, you know, in different ways until right now. And this video is a, or this podcast is a good example of how things have become. And I, I am so grateful for that and and that has played out in different aspects of my life in different ways so uh, my 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 dominant emotional posture is gratitude these days Mm. that's been the case for the last almost 20 years
1: Mm. so
2: thank you sweetie for this opportunity to connect
1: thank you that was really really nice i've i've been a little bit more emotional today i so i feel there's some tears um wallowing in my eyes right now. I actually cried over my morning coffee this morning for no reason.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Poor Andrew. Yeah, I just I I sat down with my coffee and I looked at him and then I was like, I feel like I'm gonna cry. And then I just started crying.
2: <laughs> Isn't that funny? Yeah, <laughs> well, but yeah, thank but
1: you. Thank yeah, you, thank you. yeah, I really appreciate you. And I um you know, the tone of intimacy my, my last little question for you. So when I first started this podcast, I also had the idea of a sister podcast to go along with it. And I don't know if I sh- have shared this with you yet. No, the, the sister podcast, the the name would be the ZYX to live your dope life. And mm. initially the way I had um, envisioned this was that everybody I speak to for each episode, we would then follow up for a, a secondary conversation where we ingest a little bit of cannabis uh, and then go into a conversation. Do
2: the same thing again.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, you know, um, like the like the drunk history thing.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> well, part of part of my reasoning behind it was um, educational to help yeah. people understand that it's it's not just the derelict out there that are you know smoking weed. There's actually some very high functioning people, probably yeah. more than most people would very imagine. More. yeah Yeah, that are you know using it as as medicine or using it as a glass of wine or you know there's there's many different ways and it it really is about the environment you're in and how much you consume um but something that's shifted for me over the last I I think this is episode 12 something around there um as I've brought this up at the end of every episode there's majority of people have been like yeah let's do it and there has been also of course a few people who have been a little bit off put by it of like I don't know if that's something that I want to do and and I, I in my own ongoing research one of the things that I learned in the last little bit is that endocannabinoids which is what cannabis uh, it's the receptors we have within yeah. us that is why we can get high by ingesting something it's because we have the receptors and those same receptors are lit up through exercise oh through,
3: yeah
1: yeah through being out in nature. Yeah. And when we exercise to the point where we have to push past um, that point of persistence, it's yeah. like a long walk feels good, but it's not the same as running to the point where you want to stop and then you push past that.
2: So, so it's, well, the, the, the endorphins. So you're saying endorphins are very similar to, uh, to what comes with cannabis to THC. Is that the
1: well, idea? S- similar in the sense that they feel similar, but they're, totally different receptors and chemicals. I so see. they do they do come out at the same time, but that, that feeling of high um, from a good run or being out in nature, yeah. yeah, endorphins, dopamine, like tons of different chemicals, including endocannabinoids.
2: Oh, isn't that interesting.
1: So my new offering or invitation is, you know, if you're comfortable, if that's something you wanna do where we yeah. ingest a little bit of cannabis and have a conversation, or we can go out in nature and do something where we push past the point of persistence. Maybe we go for a hike or, or even I have a friend who the idea was to just walk through the forest and, you know, just, just like Hmm. forest bathing, you know, be in the energy of the forest and then sit down in nature in awe and partake in a conversation there. So, um, Hmm. yeah. So I wanted to put that out to you to see if this is something it'll be my project over the summer is to follow up and, um, and dive back in with a little bit of, uh, chemical I, assistance
2: no i I'd, I'd i'd be happy to do something like that um and, and you know i I take uh, thc every night yeah um, yeah i but it's uh i when when that when that starts to get me ready to go to sleep i would not be a very good conversationalist mm-hmm. think karen, karen thinks it's pretty funny
3: actually I
2: bet. <laughs> If I'm uh, if 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 I stay up a bit too long after I've taken it, getting ready for bed, I my uh, my brain slows way 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 down, and uh, and and so I, I I I stop making sense basically.
1: Well, I've also seen you ingest uh, sativa, and it had the opposite effect, where it was so overwhelming, you just had to go lay down.
2: Oh, well, I, and... I have just I had way 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 too much. So yeah. so my 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 point is that I'd. Um, I, I, wouldn't wanna, I wouldn't want to take something for the first time. And like, I, I know that the, the THC that I take for sleeping doesn't, it, that wouldn't be a good match for what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Sativa might be, but I just don't know. So I'd, yeah. I'd want to experiment with something and, and, and see what I was like before I, I chose to video <laughs> <laughs> record myself in, uh, in what might not be a very uh, attractive state.
1: And part of me is like, yes,
2: that's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'd, I'd be open to doing something like that.
1: Great. Yeah. We can even test out your new hips and go for a hike this summer.
2: Yeah, I'd like to do that. And and they're getting stronger. I'm, I'm making progress. I, awesome. I I ran 5k yesterday in our basement.
1: Wow. Okay. Which was a
2: little too much. I, I yeah. my, my hips were fine. I've, I've got a knee that is. Has gone like it's deteriorated during the months that I haven't been able to be active. So yep. the, the knee is actually the weakest part of the system right now. Mm, okay. But um, i I think that by certainly by the by midsummer end of summer I'm I think I'm going to be in pretty good shape. I'm, I'm excited mm-hmm. about that.
1: Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Good. Well, we'll make it happen. Okay. <laughs>
2: Thanks. Katie.
1: All right, dad. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you everyone for listening. And until next time, adios. Thanks so much for listening. You can find me on social media at dopamine. That's D-O-P-E-A-M-E or on my website under that same title, dopamine.com. Please subscribe to this podcast if you enjoyed it and do not hesitate to reach out if you have questions or comments. I would love to hear what you want to learn more about. So until next time, love big and play big. Peace.